As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Hi there, podcast fans. I'm Tom Gibbs. Welcome to Telegraph Audio Football Club. Today, the Champions League final, the biggest game in club football, the hype, the expectation, and then the actual game. Let's never speak of it again. Still, there's plenty to praise about the achievement of winning the European Cup, and we shall have an Anfield rhapsodise about Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool side, including cult hero Divock Origi. We also have a brief look back to Baku and the Europa League final before glancing ahead to the Nations League semis and the chance of some silverware for Gareth Southgate's brave boys. Plus, Antonio Conte to Milan, Joa Felix to somewhere, and remembering Jose Antonio Reyes. Let's take you now into the audio recording facility where I'm joined by just back from Baku in the nick of time. It's Sam Dean. How are you, Sam? I'm good. I'm almost all footballed out, but not quite. I've still got a bit of football enthusiasm left in me, but it's getting getting towards the end of season now, I think, for me. Good. Still got exactly one podcast left in you. Exactly. I hope. Alongside (laughs) you, as ever, it is Mina Rizuki. What's happening, Mina? Hello. Well, I missed my flight to... Madrid ended up watching it with a bunch of friends in a bucket at KFC, so it was perfect. These things even themselves out over the course of a Champions League final. (laughs) Finally, completing our lineup, it's the world's greatest man, Jim White. How are you, Jim? I'm very good, Tom. Good. Did you enjoy the Champions League final? Sorry, I'd I'd missed the Champions League final. (laughs) Oh, no! I've had my head... uh, Being a Manchester United supporter, it's not been a great month. (laughs) I'm sorry, Jim, this is going to hurt when I describe <laughs> Liverpool's European Championship victory as just remarkable. Six wins of possibly the biggest competition. No, no, possibly. The biggest club competition in the world of football. No, is it? What, what's bigger than the Champions League for, in club football? Oh, club football. I was going to say World Cup, but yeah. club football. Yeah, Pay attention, probably. Mina. Uh, I think you've got to say Liverpool worthy champions of this tournament as a whole. Obviously, we'll get to the final itself, which was a little bit disappointing. Um, would you agree, Sam? Liverpool deserve to win this tournament? Yeah, absolutely. Especially considering what they've achieved this season across the whole, uh, across the Premier League as well as in Europe. And the, uh, they've clearly, I mean, it's, it's funny looking back to 2005 and the last time they won it, when they when they won it, it was, it was pretty much a miracle. And it was an underdog story and it was Jimmy Traore and Luis Garcia and players who aren't, Champions League winners and it was done against all the odds with just a sense of 
a sense of history and weight behind it, which was just purely sort of poetry. Whereas this has been a team who are really very good, just being too good for us of the competition. I think this is more of a this is more of a an example of a of, a, of Liverpool at their at their best. Whereas that 2005 was sort of felt like magic, but it wasn't um, them at their them at their sort of ultimate teamwork in that sort of sense. Uh, whereas Liverpool this time, I think, was just brilliant and better than better than better than the rest. How, can you really? I mean, in all honesty, if we're, if we're playing just devil's advocate, because you know, I, I do think like perhaps certainly towards the latter stages they were the best team, but just looking at their form out of Anfield, considering the group stages, they didn't win a single away game, and then you just looked at their performances against Bayern, um, against Barcelona, away from home, they just seemed to really not be a team that dazzled you all the way through and even in the final considering the fact that they were for me overwhelming favorites um 64 pass completion rate 64 percent it just looked like it was a side that didn't necessarily you know again I don't know whether it was because it wasn't played in Anfield there was this level of they weren't a team that blew you away but then neither did Real Madrid um so I don't know but you know back then when you think of yourself as a Champions League winner you think it's a team that just basically like hammered every single opponent to the final but when you look at the fact that they struggled to get out of the group game uh, group stages and you know they weren't particularly astounding against, uh, I mean, they lost to Red Star Belgrade, you know, they, they struggled against Napoli and PSG. Yes, then it was a, a very poor Bayern. It was an easy match against Porto. Barcelona is the, is the <laughs> I was going to say iconic game. Mm. Um, it was the... We've had discussions about this before the podcast <laughs> and we will not be using the word iconic ever again. Ever again. Um, but that was the, like, the match of, you know, like, God, probably one of the matches of the Champions League because Spurs came pretty close with Ajax. Other than that, though, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a game where they were just, you know, faced with this great opponent and they totally trashed them. In Bayern Munich away was very impressive. The way they went there, because they obviously it was nil nil in the first leg, and then they went there, and I think they won three one. I think if it was a Bayern Munich that, that wasn't Nico Kovac in charge, I would have maybe agreed with you. And I, you're right, and that is something to be recognised as well. And in comparison to to how much all the other big champions failed along the way, from Real Madrid, from Juventus, from you know Barcelona, in the end, they deserve it more than anyone else. I just wish that their form away from home was. A little bit more spectacular. But it's very rarely perfect. As Tom indicated, this is the toughest competition to win. You're up against the best sides in Europe. If you look at what happened to Manchester United in 99, they scraped through, mm. you know, a, 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 a couple of amazing comebacks during the course of it. Never once did they look the dominant force. If you look back over recent uh, years, perhaps only Barcelona in 2010-11 would have gone through brushing everybody aside. This is the very hardest competition to win. And the fact that Liverpool were the last men standing makes them deserved winners. I also think what really uh, was impressive about uh, that victory was the the reaction at the end of the players who didn't play. I think that was a really significant moment. People like Oxlade-Chamberlain, people like Lalana joining in with real uh, enthusiasm, although they didn't get a kick of the game. That showed what a squad mentality Klopp has built. He took over a club four years ago, was it? Riven with ego. 
and pretty mediocre and has turned them into European champions. Oh God, and yeah. that in itself is a, um, a, a significant achievement that really ought to be lauded. It reminded me of a story from Pep Guardiola's first season at Barcelona when quite early on, when Barcelona scored a goal, he would turn around and look at his bench and he'd see which of the subs jumped up to celebrate. And those who didn't, he basically said, you're not, you're not buying in, you're out. And that was sort of his way of filtering through. And you, as, as you say, that this strike with me, Jim, as well, that every single one of that squad, obviously they would be up happy because they wanted, but nobody was sulking. Even like, I think Shodan Shakiri was the first one to hug Klopp at one of the goals went in. And it was just, and he hadn't played at all. He'd been benched and he's pretty much cast out for the second half of the season. And it just shows what sort of spirit he's built up there. I, I think Klopp has proved more than anything that he is definitely, if not the best than one of the very best that we've seen in a mm. while. Um, just what he's done with Liverpool, the way that he's changed their mentality to have built them with such strength of character, you know, considering everything, you know, that the run-in in the Premier League, fighting in this competition, reaching a consec- two consecutive Champions League finals is not easy feat. And you get everyone on board and everyone fighting in the same direction. And, and honestly, when you look at this on paper, they're not exactly a team that blow you away. But on the pitch... They're just incredible the way that they will play his game and and fulfill his strategies and his instructions and fight until the end. And for that alone, I think that he deserves a trophy. They've got, they got a bit of your beloved balance, haven't they, Mina? If you go through that team and, <laughs> yeah. and you know the, the midfield, especially, you think, oh, I don't, I'm not sure how many of those players I would necessarily pick to walk into big European teams, but it, it just functions really well together. Returning to that subject of man management. Divock Origi is an interesting mm. case for next year, isn't he? Because he's now this enormous hero at Anfield for what he's done. Um, but he's not going to start starting, is he? He's, he's not going to displace those front three regularly. How do you manage him next year? I think the fact that Sturridge is leaving this summer for, on a free uh, helps his cause. I mean, Origi's contract's up next year, so you expect their time down to a new one so they sort of protect his, his value in that sense. But I think, if you could, I think you could easily convince him to be, OK, you're the first reserve in that sense because Liverpool have been very fortunate this year that Mane, Salah and Firmino have barely got injured I mean Firmino's obviously had a few a few issues but the other two have been pretty much untouched and it's the same for Shakiri. that's why he's not really played so you can see them saying okay Origi you're the first backup to Firmino in a different sort of option I mean you know he came on after an hour on the Champions League final it wasn't like he was the last roll of the dice or anything desperate he, he was you know he was deemed capable of playing a full 35 minutes 30 minutes in the Champions League final, so they clearly have some faith and trust in him. Um, I, I, as you say, I can't see him ever being a starter, but he, he he might be happy as okay. You'll be playing. You'll be the first option off the bench every week, and whenever someone gets injured, you'll be in. Honestly, it's a, it, they could start a dynasty, and in order to do that, the best thing to do is ensure that sometimes players are rested. And I don't know for what particular games it could be a group stage at the Champions League or one of the games against I don't know a, a smaller team, and. You can bring him in, you can rotate him with Salah, you can rotate him with even even Mane, to be honest. I think that he can be a player. If you say to him, this is what we're looking for, we're looking to build something really special, um, then I would never leave if I was him. He, three shots he had in the Champions League and scored three goals. It's not a bad record, is it? <laughs> but you look at where he was when Klopp took over the club, you know, he was a forgotten man. Mm. It, nobody even... I, I mean, I, I remember a kind of surprise that he was in the squad uh, earlier this season. He, he was completely forgotten. And so Klopp has already brought him back into the fold and, and, and made him a significant player. I think next season, he'll just say to him, kick on, start really putting pressure on. I wouldn't be surprised if he plays 20, 30 games next season. 
putting aside the team you support, Jim, and congratulations, by the way, for getting a 1999 mention in so early in the podcast. Very, <laughs> very good effort there. Uh, I, First of three, I think, because <laughs> there were three. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, yeah, I think we've been over that. Uh, are you pleased for Klopp? Absolutely. This was his sixth final, and he was becoming tainted with this idea that he was never going to get over the line. He looked so relieved. Uh, it, I, I, loved, um, I loved him counting on his fingers uh, the six European trophies when he was on the... It was actually, I think, he was counting the numbers of beers he'd had already uh, on that. He, he, uh, he's great. He's a great man, a, a great manager, and absolutely uh, deserves it. It's where he goes from here, I think, is, is going to be uh, the, the interesting next stage. Because whatever he does... He's got this monolith uh, down the road in Manchester that he's got to try and get past. And I think, ultimately, he's going to be finally judged by Liverpool fans. They already regard him. Jamie Carragher writing in The Telegraph this morning saying he's the most important manager at Liverpool in 30 years. Mm. Uh, and, and that's absolutely true. You know, he's matched Rafa Benitez in that he's won the Champions League and taken the uh, club to another final, which Benitez did. Um, the most important manager in 30 years. To be the most important manager in even longer than that, he's got to win the title, I think. He knows that. Uh, and, and that is going to be even harder, I think, than winning the Champions League because of what's down the road at City. Yeah, new contract coming for him by the looks of things. You can definitely see him being at the club for a good long while yet. Enough positivity, though, about Liverpool. Was this the worst Champions League final <laughs> you can remember watching? And why was it so bad? I know the commentators spoke a lot about the break between the end of the Premier League season and this game. Uh, also, as they kept saying, it was very hot there. Was there any other reason why this was such a stinker of a game? It's funny, actually, because we talk about this in the last podcast. And, and I really genuinely had expected at the time for this to be, because it was a matchup between two English sides and everyone always complains about Italian tactics and Spanish, you know, like boringness or whatever. And I just thought, no, this is two English sides. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be emotional. People won't defend. Uh, no, that's completely not true. And actually, um, that was, you know, that was the counter argument in, the, in last week's pod. And I do think that perhaps when you just have something that you're thinking about for three weeks constantly, when you're having to like do what Spurs did, which is, you know, break arrows, you know, against your neck and run on hot coal and all these mental, you know, exercises to try to get your strength up on that level and to not capitulate. I think it just adds so much pressure that you're you're thinking so much that you don't let go and actually play your game because you're too scared that you'll be the guy that ruins it for your team. And and I think these that kind of, you know, at the end of the day, neither side is hugely experienced at the highest level. You know, this is this is an achievement that Klopp's taken to take the side all the way through. And obviously, you know, Spurs and Pochettino. So I don't think either side is one like, you know, where you have a Real Madrid or Barcelona who are totally accustomed to reaching these stages and, and no, no longer feel that pressure. I think there was that despite Liverpool reaching the final last season. I suppose there was the fact that there was the very early penalty as well, which does change the nature of the game immediately. It felt to me that Liverpool... Had seen what had happened in the previous games and thought, right, something strange has happened early on and now we just make sure that the, the momentum doesn't shift and we sit back. It also uh, meant that Liverpool could just, as you say, sit back and just go long over the top and try and counter-attack. And they didn't nearly, they didn't really need to play their game as much and didn't right. need to, to push quite as high. And it, it sort of put the onus on Spurs to create and Spurs really didn't. I think that sort of helped make the occasion worse. What was it a penalty though? Glenn Hoddle said uh, afterwards on BT Sport that if this counts as a penalty now we're going to have a hundred penalties in every game and that is really <laughs> going to change football if, if Glenn Hoddle's right. Uh, uh, the, the, it was definitely a penalty. 
Uh, there was no doubt about it being a penalty, just the manner in which he made contact with the ball. Now, even if it was a shrewd bit of thinking to seeing that he was pointing mm. to aim the ball at him, it still was using your hand to disturb the flight of the ball. So, yeah, no question it was a penalty. Um, I, I think going back to why it was such a bad final uh, was, I think Min is absolutely right that the psychological issues were huge here. It was two teams who cancelled each other out in style, so that didn't help. But I think psychologically, both of them have been so used to being the absolute out-and-out underdogs with no Mm. chance. That's where they found their strength, their emotional strength. And I think when they were pitched against each other evenly, neither of them was quite sure how to proceed. Yeah, they certainly did look very tired. What about Spurs? What went wrong for them? Was it right to start Harry Kane? And what do we expect from them next season? I think the Kane thing is so difficult because if he's fit and he says, I'm fit, I'm ready to go and he's sharp in training, you can't, you can't not pick Kane, can you? And I don't think Pochettino is the kind of manager to, to worry about what the wider world would say if he didn't pick Kane. But just even within that squad and having built so much of their recent success around Kane and so much of that team is built and so much of Pochettino's progress there has been with Kane at the forefront of it. It's to be so hard to say, sorry, you're on the bench. But I do think it was a mistake. I think the fact is, more, Lucas Moura did so well in that semi-final. To, he must be the first guy in history to be dropped from a, for a final, having scored a hat-trick in the semi-final. I mean, yeah, look at it, I think it was a really poor choice. And Kane cl- clearly wasn't at his sharpest. And you can see the logic that, oh, you know, it'll occupy Van Dijk more, maybe it'll open up space elsewhere, but he just didn't look anywhere near his most his most sharp and that I think that really hurt when it, when the ball went forward you see it wasn't it wasn't sticking for Spurs and Deli Ali was poor as well and Kane wasn't helping out and it just looked like for me that Kane wasn't fresh I thought that what they was going to do was leave Kane on the bench in case it went to a penalty shootout you've got to have the best penalty taker mm-hmm. in the world uh, coming on Oh, so you didn't uh, even at, think at for the point, 90 but, minutes he'd be introduced uh, uh, no I thought he'd come on uh, you know maybe towards the very last minute of the 90 minutes if it was going to go towards a, a, a penalty shootout. Uh, Mora, of course, um, squandered his one chance that he had with that. That You know, he didn't take his chance in the way Origi did. Mm. Um, but maybe if he'd been on the pitch longer, he would have had more of them. He, he created more in 25 minutes than Kane managed to that whole time. And listen, we, we all know that I, I, I think it sets a bad tone because I think the whole point of a great team is one where there is a little bit of a meritocracy. I'm not saying that Origi did so well that he should have started over Salah in Liverpool either because if we're considering just Champions League final. But we're trying, like, as in if I'm Pochettino and I'm trying to boost the squad to feel like it's important and I want Son, who's the best when he's through the middle rather than having to occupy, you know, space on the out wide, I just think stick with what you what's worked for you. Um, and I, I and I think it is the vertical and the speed and the pace, uh, the vertical edge that Son and Mora have when they're together, and bring in Kane afterwards because what you're looking at with Van Dijk, no one dribbles past him. It's got to be a really quick feed. He's not somebody that can be occupied in the way that Matthias de Ligt can. Um, so I think that it's he is a different. He's probably the best defender in the world at the moment. Um, so I, I just feel like that wasn't going to work with a player who's just come back from injury for him to all of a sudden overwhelm him with these quick passes and these quick feet. So I think that it should have been a, an option on the bench. I am disappointed. I thought Deli Ali just really didn't make the most of any opportunities he had to get into the right spaces. In general, Spurs just didn't look like it clicked. And it's weird because they have this amazing player in Kane. But I honestly do believe that a lot of the times they seem to click better without him. 
Uh, can, can, can I just reinforce what Mina was saying about Va- Virgil van Dijk? Terrible final, but one of the great moments uh, was when van Dijk just put on the accelerator, the afterburners, caught up with Son and did a superb mm. tackle oh, that was as Son was moving away. That was defensive arts at their finest. An iconic moment from Virgil. <laughs> <laughs> Let's briefly look back on the Europa League final, Sam, in Baku. An absolute tonking for Arsenal, a 4-1 defeat to Chelsea. What was it like there? Was it flat? It seemed flat. It was very flat. It was actually unusual. It was, it was not very enjoyable at all as a, as a sporting experience um, because they'd, they'd given it the full fireworks and DJ and all that beforehand and it was very much like pumped up and the music was blaring out. And then as soon as it stopped, it was like the whole air had been sucked out of the stadium and it just it was in a sort of vacuum and it just went deathly quiet for the first five minutes and everyone just saw <laughs> what's going on here. It genuinely felt like a, a friendly. Um, was, was it a Chelsea good game or an Arsenal bad game? Um, I think the first half an hour, Arsenal quite good. Didn't make the most of it. And then Hazard and Giroud produced moments of quality in the second half, which Arsenal just simply could not cope with. I think that was the, the defining difference. I mean, Arsenal did collapse. I conceded three goals in 12 minutes, which is not acceptable in a European final once the first goal went in they just lost their heads which is something that Emery had spent so much of the previous few days talking about how he's trying to instill that competitive spirit and trying to sort of scrub away the the flimsiness from the Wenger years I think this emphatically showed that it's going to take a lot more scrubbing to get rid of all that (laughs) Men's football not over quite yet we have the Nations League coming this Thursday when England play the Netherlands in the semi-final are we looking forward to this game or is there a danger it's going to be the hangover after the hangover? Because we've got several teams, who, several players even, who played in the Champions League final who likely are going to feature for England. Is it going to be good against the Netherlands? Uh, Virgil van Dijk against Harry Kane. Van Dijk must be oh, barely getting any sleep, I would have thought. <laughs> uh, He's uh, certainly been prospect. enjoying a few, uh, a few beers, Virgil van Dijk. I think, I think, I'm not quite sure he'll be in the best state of, uh, <laughs> state of mind or body. To, uh, how how to seriously it. do you think the players are taking this generally? I think Honestly, England are. Yeah, I think so. I think especially Netherlands want to put on a show in the sense that you know now they, they've started having, considering what their legacy is, what their tradition is as a, as a national team and to have not qualified for the Euros and not qualified for the World Cup. This is about like, listen, we have some of the best players in the world from Dilia to, to the Ajax squad to Virgil van Dijk. Um, they want to make the difference. And I think for them that it's... a you know, it's a great encounter because it's England. Everyone's raving about England now. They reached the semi-finals of the World Cup. Are they a team now we should fear? And I think they're going to be determined with Kuman in charge to show themselves to be a club that can still, you know, cause a surprise and and be one of the giants of the on the international stage. Don't underestimate how much Gareth Southgate wants this as well. Mm. I mean, I think, I think this is a really significant moment for him to prove that he has advanced things since the World Cup semi-final. You know, the England have not stood still. They've not regarded that as the end point. And I think he, he sees this as a staging point uh, towards the Euros uh, next year. He, that, no doubt he wants to win that. And people, uh, players like Raheem Sterling as well, want to mark it. Mm. Remember, not all of them played in the Champions League final. <laughs> there are a couple who didn't. I've, I think you could... Only one will play, I think. Only Kane has to play who played the Champions League final. I think you could put a team out. You could put 10 others who weren't involved. You play Trent. No, play Carl Walker, wouldn't you? Because then these guys are going to be shattered, surely. surely I'd going still to be. try them. I don't know. But uh, there's something Kane said at the start of the season, at the start of the Nations League campaign, when everyone was sort of 
sniffing about it, going, what is this UEFA contraption, which is just clearly nonsense. And then okay. now, now that England are doing quite well, we will really like it. Um, <laughs> but uh, Kane said quite early on, uh, yes, it may not be historic or iconic right now as a, tr- as a title. Leave it, so. <laughs> it, it may not be a, It may not be a scene as a big title right now, but in 30 years' time, it might well be. So to win, to be the first winners of it could be a genuinely incredible achievement. I mean, you look back it's at the like first... being the first winners of the Watney Cup, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You look back at the winners of the so first... So memorable. But the winners who won the first World Cup back in the 30s weren't thinking, oh, you know, it probably, probably was, oh, very nice, well done. That was jolly good. But now look at what's happened. So you never know. The Nations League. <laughs> the Nations League in a century. I'm not sure I agree with that. We could, I think, I think, I think Uruguay was pretty happy shirt. to win you're, the first ever Uruguay, World Cup. Uruguay are wearing stars on their shirts to do with winning the Olympic Games. So, you know. The, the, it could matter loads more right. in 25, 30 Will we years. get a star on our shirt? Is FIFA going to ruin no, the World Cup? guys, this is like the equivalent of the ICC. Because <laughs> no, no. FIFA are going to ruin the World Cup by putting about 80 teams in it at once and staging it in some desert in the Gulf. And then, so it's going to become. This is going to become the primary international competition. <laughs> big call. Big call. Are England favourites to win the game against Holland, Mina? For you, I think they have to be. Actually, yes, I would say so. This is the team that's reached the semi-final of of the World Cup. It's a team that you know, like <laughs> it's a country that's produced to four of the European finalists. I mean, I know that it's not it's not like these four teams were littered with English internationals, but I certainly think the final had a few. Um, so when you consider that, and you consider that, you know, for, for many, Holland is still a team that's trying to get back in there, trying to show that they are a force once again. They're still almost in a transitional year or, or you know, in that phase where they've yet to prove that they've actually accomplished everything that they're looking to accomplish, whereas England is, I think, further along in the journey. So for me, they have to be the favourites. What about the other semi-final, Portugal versus Switzerland? Who would you want England to play if they did reach the final of the Nations League? Switzerland, obviously. Portugal has, you know, Ronaldo, João Felix, potentially Pepe at the back killing people. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't want Portugal. They're European it, winners. Except it, it would make it a much better... Bigger yeah. occasion yeah. because it oh, would be in Lisbon and 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 therefore that that would make it more stirring. I mean, yeah, England against Switzerland in Lisbon in the Nations League. Yeah, it doesn't have what, quite the same ring to it. Three hundred people. Do you guys want entertainment or do you want to win? Both. Oh, okay. Drama narrative. Hmm. Is there a chance that this is the start of the uh, the come down for England? I feel like. Oh, look at the negativity spreading. Well, I, no, I, just, I don't. Good, I Jim. really <laughs> do <laughs> think, Bang that drum. I really do think Southgate is getting it right. I really hope you're right. You're listening to the Telegraph Audio Football Club, part of the Telegraph Podcasting Network. To find more of our podcasts, just go to telegraph.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Mina, last week I did say it was the final Song for Europe of the season, but here we are again. It's a Song for Europe, Mina. Who knew? European football still going on, news still happening. It never sleeps, does it? What about Antonio Conte? <laughs> Off to Inter Milan. Uh, this is the, uh, well, there's been several contenders for that job, isn't it? But, but this seems a, a fairly decent appointment for them. What sort of situation is he going to be walking into there? Yeah, it's a strange one, actually, because Inter have just sort of, you know, come out of a uh, financial fair play and um, they don't have that much money to splash around. So to get rid of Spalletti, who is already in charge, it costs about 25 million. 
you know, considering they have to pay out his uh, his staff and everything for the remainder of the contract. Bringing in Antonio Conte, I hardly, you know, believe that he'd be on anything less than about £35 billion. Pounds, you know? <laughs> he demands so much money, and I love an exaggeration. Um, but I just feel like it's a lot of money to be spending on your, you know, like coaching staff when you consider the fact that that squad is aging and is in need of great investment into youth, into several areas. Their midfield, their forward line is just not good enough. And everyone that they keep looking at is old, uh, whether it be Jaco or Diego Godin, or I'd love to see what Antonio Conte is going to do with them. Um, obviously, Juventus fans have been so upset about this because he's not just their old coach, but of course, their old captain, a player there. And they have actually now signed like all these protests to be like, we need, we want his star from the Juventus stadium removed because it's unbelievable that you would accept a job with Inter, who, who many Juve fans accuse of being involved when it came to Calciopoli to get them relegated. So it's like of all teams you're going to choose, you chose Inter, you're out, your, your star is out. Right, harsh, harsh treatment for Antonio, but sure he'll do a very good job. What about Roma? Mina, James Palotta, their president, wrote a 3,000 word letter to the fans admitting that the season was a complete disaster. What's gone wrong for them? They were so close to the Champions League final just last year. I know. I think it's over 3,000 actually. I thought it was a really nice gesture, to be honest. I'm not sure many Roma fans will agree with me. They have been so upset with the way that Roma's season has gone, the fact that they didn't even make Champions League, the fact that they started this project with Monchi and Eusebio Di Francesco and it did so well last season and all fell apart. Um, there's several reasons, and I and I can't say management is entirely uh, to blame for all of it, but one thing is for sure, and Jim acknowledged this, is that the way that Daniele De Rossi, who is you know the captain and a legend for Roma, the way his departure was handled wasn't very nice. He was also lied to about the fact that they didn't necessarily see a future beyond this season for him, and they had already started to purchase replacements and the likes of Nzonzi. Um, he talked about the fact that they didn't want to sell Salah and Allison, but that they had to. Um, he talks about the fact that they bought in these players uh, such as Clivert, uh, such as Javier Pastore, and they're not necessarily players that Di Francesco could do much with. So he said that he set him up for a fall. He's like, we acknowledge that. I, I don't think the sporting director did, did a lot right. I mean, he, he was really throwing Monchi under the bus. And, you know, the fact that there's no stadium. He's like, listen, I know that stuff's going bad, but I'm not leaving this club. And I just thought that the way that he handled it, the honesty, the transparency, the fact that it seemed to be written by him and not by a publicist, I liked it. I thought it was a nice move from him. I'm not so sure, like I said, if any Roma fans agree, but Roma fans will always, always be upset because just that's the nature of the club. They're always sort of anti-anyone. A name we're going to get very used to reading about in uh, this summer's transfer rumour roundups is Joao Felix. Why is everyone after him? He seems to be the most in-demand player in world football at the moment. Yeah, I mean, everyone obviously thinks he's the next Ronaldo simply because he's Portuguese um, and obviously is a scorer of great goals. But he's actually more of a caca, if you think about it. He's in between a number nine and number ten. He scored a, a as a he was basically a child and he scored a hat trick um, against Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League. He only made his senior debut for Benfica in, in the summer. And uh, he's just, 
you know what it is? It's he has such great intellect for a man of his age. His decision making is so spot on. And that's something that you're supposed to be coached and, and you're supposed to learn as you get older. But it seems like he already has all of these skills at hand. He's not necessarily this physical specimen of a player, but he's tall. He wins his aerial duels. He can strike with both feet. He's in between a number nine and a number 10. He can score goals. He can link up play. He, it's it's really more about the fact that, every, you know, like those who have worked with him say that having seen like Bernardo Silva at that age or several other players, he is by far and away much better than all of them. And I, I think when you buy a player with that kind of intellect already at that age, you want to you, you think that he's worth so much. Finally, Mina, a word for Jose Antonio Reyes, tragically killed over the weekend, uh, best known in this country for his time at Arsenal. How will he be remembered in Spain? With a lot of love, um, especially by Sevilla, especially by uh, his hometown. Um, actually, it was interesting because the, on Twitter, Spanish legend uh, Santiago Canizares came out and said, I don't think that he should be labeled as a hero considering, you know, the, the way the car accident happened. It was irresponsible to be driving, uh, you know, what was reported around 120 miles an hour. And... Um, and obviously he then backtracked and said, I'm not saying that he shouldn't be recognized for the wonderful career that he's had. And he has had a wonderful career. He's made a lot of friends. You saw in the Champions League final when his, uh, when his, when they did the minute silence and the visible emotion on the likes of Moreno and of course, um, Fernando Llorente. There was a wonderful tribute from Cesc Fabregas. He was, a great player, you know, found his success in Arsenal, uh, came back, you know, is with 35 years old, started with Extremadura now. Um, and, you know, he's been a superb player and will be missed. His funeral is today in Sevilla. And Sevilla, I think, as a town and, and, and uh, sorry, as a city, is just hugely, uh, hugely um, upset about all of this. Yes, quite horrible news. Let's move on to the final question of this podcast, which is after the worst Champions League final in living memory between two teams that should have known better, when have you been most disappointed by a football match you were looking forward to? We had plenty of answers from our friends on social media. Mark Beresford says every single Northampton Town game since <laughs> August 2016. Alex Goibers says Stockport versus Rotherham 2009. I can't actually find any evidence of this game happening <laughs> on the internet. And uh, Sunderland fan Lee says Sunderland versus Charlton just last week. And producer Joel Grove is celebrating in the room next to us as a Charlton fan. What have you got, Sam? Uh, I think the 2014 World Cup final, because that was the Germany against Argentina. Germany just beaten Brazil 7-1 and with this free-flowing, attacking, wonderful team full of young players and exciting attackers. And Argentina had Leo Messi, who would have been crowned the best player of all time ever if he'd won it. And it was all set up sort of to be quite free-flowing and exciting. And then it was, in fact, dreadful. And it took until the last minute of extra time for someone to finally break through. But before that, I just there wasn't much going on at all. The most interesting thing was when a player got almost killed by a goalkeeping sh- goalkeeper shoulder charging him in the face. And I can't remember who it was. That's how, that's how boring it was. I can't remember who the player was. <laughs> I don't think he's even played for Germany ever again. But yeah. Maybe he was. Kramer. Good. Christopher Kramer. There you go. I found <laughs> I it. I think in it wasn't head. in 86 Schumacher who did yeah. something. Different um, event. Never mind. What okay. have you got, Mina? Well, you know, 
Well, we can talk about 1999 and, you know, it must be nice as a United fan having actually won Champions League finals. Uh, for me, it was 2003, Milan-Juventus. Uh, it was the first all-Italian Champions League final. It was the time for Serie A to shine. Um, and it was just an exquisite, like, you know, lead up for Juve, considering they had sold off Zinedine Zidane and had Pavel Nedved, who was going to win the Ballon d'Or. It was just this fantastic player for them. Uh, did everything he can and then unfortunately was disqualified for the final. And then this was the final, you know, it was glamour of Milan versus the hard work ethic of Juventus. It was going to be a game where it was, yeah, going to be defensive brilliance, but I also thought attacking brilliance. And then it was just so dull. You know, I mean, this actual Champions League final between Spurs and, and Liverpool kind of reminded me of it, to be honest, you know, when nothing's going on. And I just think, is it is this happen? Does this happen when it's two uh, teams from the same country but then I thought Atleti Real Madrid was exciting I thought Bayern Dortmund was exciting so I don't know but that that was really disappointing and then obviously we lost on penalties We'll have to figure out another Rizuki theory which we can actually prove next season <laughs> Mina Jim White uh, Yeah I went to that one God it was awful um, <laughs> Finals often do let you down um, uh, th- this was said to be the worst Champions League final since 1986-style Bucharest against Barcelona. An absolute shocker. Uh, this was Terry Venables' uh, Barcelona. They were, they were great stylish side. They were going to come to the fore. Uh, Venables was going to be crowned king of Europe, and it was awful. Stour parked several fleets of buses and won on penalties. Absolute shocker. 1996 FA Cup final remembered solely for the fact that Liverpool were decked out in cream suits beforehand because no one can remember (laughs) what happened on the pitch thereafter apart from Eric Cantona's winner. It was... It was a terrible, terrible anticlimax. And cup finals often are. I think that was most of the 1990s for people that didn't support Manchester United. Just a series of very disappointing results. Yeah, disappointing results, but not necessarily disappointing games. But actually, finals finals do quite often. I think you're, that's a really interesting theory of uh, Muna's there, about the thought that um, when it is a domestic uh, uh, rivalry in a European setting, whether that kind of trumps everything and turns it into a snore fest. Although I imagine if it's like United-Liverpool, it would be a really good game, maybe because of the emotions. Well, it wasn't in 1996 FA Cup final. It was dire. Yeah, that's true. Oh, well, only about two weeks to wait until we get the Premier League fixtures for next season. So we'll soon have some palate cleansing football to get back into. That's your lot for this episode of Audio Football Club. We'll be back with you on Wednesday with a preview looking ahead to the Women's World Cup. Contact me on Twitter, of course, if you would like to. It's at Tom with an H Gibbs. You can also email the podcast. The address, as you surely know by now, is afcpodcast at telegraph.co.uk. Also, please subscribe. Why not? What have you got to lose? Just look for Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to Joel Grove on the buttons, and thanks to you for your company. I'll talk to you again soon.